0: You're listening to the Oldham Podcast Network. Welcome to 30 Days of Stories on the Underground Railroad in Kentucky, produced by the Oldham County History Center. I'm your host, Amy Mitchell, Assistant Director of the Oldham County History Center. The Underground Railroad refers to the efforts of enslaved African Americans to gain their freedom by escaping bondage. Wherever there were enslaved African Americans, there were people eager to escape. The first step on the Underground Railroad began when that freedom seeker stepped away from the place where they were enslaved—a home, a farm, a field, a steamboat. Many freedom seekers began their journey unaided, following the North Star, and many completed their self-emancipation without assistance. But each decade leading up to the Civil War in the United States, where slavery was legal, there was an increase in active efforts to assist escape. Kentucky became the best option available for fugitives to escape from Tennessee, Alabama, and other southern states because of the 664-mile border of the Ohio River, allowing for more potential to reach the free soil of Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. Kentucky became central to slave escapes by virtue of its physical and political geography. For that reason, Kentucky and the states along its northern border became central to the Underground Railroad, a battleground where freedom was tested and stories of courage and sacrifice were made. Today, our guest reader is Bob Thompson. Bob Thompson is an author, storyteller, handyman, dome builder, and time space explorer. He has been a storyteller for over 30 years. He was born on the banks of the Ohio River in Paducah, Kentucky, and as a child, he spent many hours on the front porch of his grandmother's country store in western Kentucky. He got to listen to the regulars swap stories and spin yarns. His grandfather told stories on the front porch in the summertime and around the pot-bellied stove in the wintertime. These things cemented his passion for storytelling. He has written two books, Hitchhiker Stories from the Kentucky Homefront published in 2017, and Stitched Together, Stories from a Kentucky Life, published in 2019. Both were published by the University Press of Kentucky. Colonel Bob is the self-appointed Commissioner of Kentucky Front Porches, and for 15 years has been the resident front porch philosopher on the Kentucky Homefront WFPK radio show. He has been the producing director for the Corn Island Storytelling Festival, and is the chairman of the International Order of Ears, which is a membership organization whose purpose, according to the bylaws, shall be to support and encourage the preservation and perpetuation of the age-old art of storytelling, to provide for the preservation and perpetuation of stories, tall tales, legends, and yarns that might otherwise fall into oblivion. Today's podcast story is Calvin Fairbank, 17 years in prison.
1: As a very young man, Calvin Fairbank, an ordained Methodist minister and graduate of the well-known abolitionist college, Oberlin College, dedicated himself to the abolition of slavery. By the age of 28, the New York State native had assisted over 43 slaves across the Ohio River. His story of involvement is all over the Ohio Valley, stretching from Louisville to to Maysville, from Cincinnati to Ripley, and into the heart of Kentucky at Lexington. Calvin Fairbank became well-known when he and Delia Webster were captured returning from Ripley, Ohio, after assisting Lewis Hayden, his wife, Harriet, and their son, Joe, escape from slavery in Lexington. For this act, Calvin was sentenced to 15 years of hard labor in the Kentucky Penitentiary, five years for each of the Hayden family members. In 1849, after serving almost five years, he received a pardon. After his pardon, Fairbanks went to Cincinnati to work with abolitionists Levi and Catherine Coffey, Salmon Chase, and others. He also became acquainted with Laura Haviland, a Quaker from Michigan who had started a school, the Raisin Institute, and he was a friend of Harry Bibbs. Against the advice of other abolitionists who feared for her safety, Haviland visited Fairbanks when he was imprisoned in Louisville to check on his condition. A few times, Fairbank emancipated slaves in public auction bids that were financed by the Coffees, Chase, and others. In his biography, Fairbank describes many of the fugitives and their families that, helped, that he helped to freedom. In 1851, he was arrested again for aiding the escape of Tamar, a fugitive slave woman from Louisville. As a known abolitionist, he was treated with prejudice and again sentenced in 1852 to the state penitentiary in Frankfurt, where he was forced to work in the hemp factory. He stated that he received 35,105 whippings when in prison. During his imprisonment, his fiancée, Mandana Tilson, moved to Cincinnati. She could visit. During his incarceration, he also received money and articles of comfort from Levi coffee and Laura de Havilland. After Fairbanks and Webster helped him escape, Lewis Hayden became a very prominent businessman, underground railroad conductor, and political leader in Boston, and raised money for Fairbanks' release on several occasions. However, while Governor Bramlett was out of state, Lieutenant Governor Richard Jacob, who always believed Fairbank was unjustly convicted, took the opportunity to sign for his release. Fairbanks spent a total of 17 years and four months In Kentucky prisons for assisting fugitive slaves. When he was pardoned on April 15, 1864, he was received with celebration and warmly welcomed with receptions by a host of abolitionist friends, and in 1865 attended President Lincoln's inauguration as a special guest. He continued to speak up for African Americans during their reconstruction years. Calvin and his wife Mandana Talston Fairbanks had a son before she died of tuberculosis in 1876. He remarried Adeline Winger. The years following his release from prison were difficult financially because of his poor health from years of imprisonment. In order to help finance a living, he published his memoirs, Reverend Calvin Fairbank During Slavery Times, How He Fought the Good Fight to Prepare the Way. The following are some excerpts from his memoirs. The Lewis and Hayden Family Escape. I left for Kentucky about 24 August, 1844, and taking time to learn the best route and become acquainted with reliable sources of aid, I arrived in Lexington, Kentucky on the 1st of September. Miss Delia Webster was then teaching in Lexington. I examined into the case of Barry's wife, the slave woman, whom I had come to aid, but it seemed doubtful whether I could succeed in getting her away. In the meantime, Miss Webster told me of a slave man named Louis Hayden, his wife and son of ten years, who were very anxious to escape, and I resolved to aid them. Interviews were held and arrangements made, and on the night of September 28th, Miss Webster and I, waiting in a hired hack near the residence of Cassius M. Clay on the outer part of the city, were joined by Hayden and wife and son. At Millersburg, 24 miles distance, we were detained nearly, nearly an hour, having to obtain another horse in the place of ours, which failed. And while we were there, we were recognized by two colored men from Lexington. On their return, they unwittingly started the report, which afterward led to our arrest. At nine o'clock the next morning, we crossed the river at Maysville, Kentucky, and were soon safely in Ripley, Ohio. I conducted the fugitives to the Depot for the Underground Railroad, where they took passage and reached Canada in safety. The next day we started back, Miss Webster, to resume her teaching in Lexington, and to return to the and to return the hired hack, and to see what I could do about rescuing Barry's wife. But information had reached the master of the Hayden slaves, as their mode of escape. He had an officer of the law engaged, and just as we reached Lexington, we were arrested. The next day, I was put in irons. I slept on the bare floor of the jail for the greater part of four months and 18 days until I was confined in the penitentiary in Frankfurt. Miss Webster, as might be expected, was more humanely treated. We were both called into court in January. Our cases were separated that mine should not prejudice hers. The law under which we were recognized provided that any person found guilty of aiding a slave or slaves to escape from his, her, or their master, masters, mistress, mistresses beyond the limit of the state, shall be punished for each offense by an imprisonment of not less than two, nor more than twenty years. Miss Webster was tried first and found guilty and sentenced to prison for the term of two years. I petitioned the legislature for a change of venue and obtained the vote of both branches to move my case to Paris, Bourbon County. But Governor Owsley, being well disposed toward Miss Webster's release and desiring to guard against the possibility of bringing her testimony into court for my defense, decided that whenever I would go to trial and the case should have passed the verdict of the jury, whatever might be the result, he would pardon her. I therefore requested him not to sign the bill, certified the court of my willingness to go to trial, and pleaded to the facts as soon as possible assuming the responsibility and procure her release. It was so ordered. I went into trial and pleaded guilty according to the statutes, qualifying my plea by declaring that I felt no moral guilt. The Commonwealth offered no testimony, no plea, and I was allowed to make my own defense. In my plea, I made these points. First, I expected conviction as the law provided— Second, though I had knowingly violated the law and laid myself liable to the full penalty, yet I pleaded an abatement on the grounds of conscientious conviction of duty. I was convicted and sentenced for a term of 15 years to the penitentiary, where I was conveyed on the 18th of February, 1845. Miss Webster was pardoned on the 24th and went with her father to his home in Vermont. Calvin's friends and sympathizers made a strenuous effort to obtain his release. Although they received some encouragement, they were put off by Kentucky officials again and again. In the summer of 1849, Calvin Fairbanks' father came to Lexington with many petitions from influential persons and succeeded in obtaining from the governor a promise of pardon for the prisoner. The governor fulfilled his promise, but the father did not live to see his son set free. He died of cholera in Lexington in the month of July. Calvin Fairbank received his pardon and returned to his home. in friend. Calvin's friends and sympathizers made strenuous efforts to obtain his release, and though they received some encouragement, they were put off by the Kentucky officials again and again. In the summer of 1849, Calvin Fairbank's father came to Lexington with many petitions from influential persons and succeeded in obtaining from the governor a promise of pardon for the prisoner. The governor fulfilled his promise, but the father did not live to see the son set free. He died of cholera in Lexington in the month of July. Calvin Fairbank received his pardon August 23rd and returned home and friends after an imprisonment of five years. In the autumn of 1851, Fairbank's sympathies were again roused for Tamar, a slave woman who was cruelly oppressed and despite... The severe punishment he had previously suffered, he attempted to rescue her. Crossing the river from Louisville, Kentucky to Jeffersonville, Indiana, in a leaky skiff with nothing but a board as paddle, he succeeded in bringing Tamar away and starting her safely northward on the Underground Railroad. Fairbanks later described the episode in writing. It was now my purpose to go to Lexington, Kentucky, and remove my father's body to his former home in Wyoming County, New York, then return to Williamsburg, Massachusetts, and consummate my marriage engage- engagement to Miss Mandana Tilson. After I, but I was delayed. and In the meantime, a large reward had been offered for the escaped slave Tamar and her assistant. Learning of this and actuated by... Mercenary motives, a man in whom I had placed confidence betrayed me. And Sabbath morning, the ninth of November, I was seized by Kentucky officials and hurried across the river. The arrest was made without legal authority, without demand from the governor of Kentucky or rendition by the governor of Indiana. I was brought before the public judge of Louisville, held to bail for five thousand dollars, and in default of this, thrown into jail. I wrote to Frederick Douglass's paper, and Soon my case was known to friends. Laura de Havilland came from Adrian, Michigan, bringing supplies of bedding, a little money, and a good deal of chair. Efforts were made to raise money among anti-slavery friends in the north for my bail, but a man to whom this work was entrusted proved dishonest, and most of the funds were squandered. Word was brought to me from time to time that Tamar had been captured and was to be brought back, but this, to my great satisfaction, proved untrue. In the February term of court, notwithstanding a petition for postponement, I was forced into trial. My friends were sanguine, but I felt depressed. I was trembling over the abyss of a dark and uncertain future. A life, long or short, of deferred plans, broken purposes, dissipated hopes. The trial took place February twenty-first, 1852. I was convicted. I was sentenced to 15 years' confinement at hard labor in jail and penitentiary house at State. So ended this part of the drama, and I had before me nothing but privation, toil, unsatisfied longing for friends, home, association, country, and civil liberty. On the ninth of March, I was taken to the penitentiary at Frankfurt and set to work preparing and spinning hemp in the shops devoted to that purpose— This was very trying to one's health, both on account of the laboriousness of the work and of the dust. In the low-closed room where the hemp was hatchled, the dust arising from the hatches of twenty men, hard at work, was sometimes so dense that the windows appeared but indistinct. This was almost fatal to a person with weak lungs. I have seen men put into that shop and in six hours fall powerless with lung irritation, undergoing a flagging and dying before the next morning. Calvin Fairbanks suffered greatly from the effects of the close confinement and hard labor and began to fail in health. At times, being deprived of vegetables, he resorted to eating grass and weeds from the prison yard. But great as his physical sufferings were, his mental sufferings were still greater. He felt that there was no hope of pardon or release before his term expired, and the prospect of 15 years' separation from all he loved filled him with gloom. Owing to his failing health, he was transferred from the hemp rooms to the Cooper shop where his health improved somewhat. The keeper of the prison, a man named Craig, had a particular grudge against Fairbank because of a personal dealing with Delia Washington, who had at one time been a governess to his children. His vindictiveness manifested at every possible opportunity. The following is an instance. Craig had fallen out with Delia Webster and for some time had chart, who for some time had charge of her his two children as governess, and persuaded the state attorney at Lexington to raise upon the docket two old charges against her for slave aiding, which had been erased in eighteen 18- in January of eighteen forty five, and to make a demand for her upon the governor of Indiana, through the governor of Kentucky, procured her arrest and locked her in the Madison jail. Her friends sued out a writ of habeas corpus. Craig went to resist. He was defeated, and attempting to cross the river to evade the mob, was shot and wounded in the back. I knew I would side with her. Anything I might say, I would say guardedly. Some of the men in the shop told me the news. I appreciated the importance of the case, and leaning over my truck in silence for a moment, I straightened up and said, I'm sorry for his family. He ought to have kept away. This was all I said. As soon as I was able to get out, I was arraigned before him and confronted by men from the shop who stated that I said, I'm glad of it, and he ought to have kept away. I hope they'd kill him next time. On this false testimony, I received 39 lashes from a rawhide on my bare back, cutting the flesh every time. It was too good a chance for the mean soul to let slip. Mandana Tyson Towson Calvin's fiancée left her home in Massachusetts and took a teaching job in Oxford, Ohio, so she could be closer to Calvin, watch over him, and alleviate his distress. She sent him bedding, money, boxes of provisions, and strove by every means in her power to make his hard lot more endurable. She cheered him with letters and frequent visits with... With feminine eloquence and determination, she continually made unsuccessful attempts to obtain his pardon, often pleading in person to the governor of Kentucky. Other friends, including Tamar, sent him supplies, books, comfortable underclothing, food, money, and other necessities. The prisoner certainly needed all the help his friends could give him. Spite against him on account of his anti slavery principles was cherished by the jail keeper, and tasks were given him beyond his strength to perform. When he failed in these, he was flogged. He said of his imprisonment I was bound over a chair, and my back bared. Then I was flogged with a leather strap on my back. I have often counted sixty blows, never many more, I could not. The strap was used because it inflicted more pain, but did the body less harm than the raw rawhide which cuts the flesh. I never had my flesh torn by the strap, but once then little particles were found on the wall 15 foot away. Often when bound over the chair, when such continuous torture stared me in the face and there was no escape, the thought of desperate deeds flashed through my mind. But rectitude, the interest involved... Country, home, friends, my dear wife watching over the border and occasionally cheering me by her visit, bade me rise above the present and look hopefully into the future. I write wife because, though only affianced, we were morally husband and wife. Through all my imprisonment, there was the same devotion on her part and the same fidelity and care on the part of Levi Coffin and Laura S. Haviland. The years went on, the heavy, weary years, and the Civil War broke out. In 1864, Fairbanks was pardoned by Lieutenant Governor Governor Jacob. When when acting as governor in the place of Bramlett, who had been called before President Lincoln to answer charges, Fairbanks wrote about his release. I arrived in Cincinnati on the 16th. And after calling on old friends, made my way to Levi Coffins, where I was not at first recognized on account of the change I had undergone. Next day, we attended the church presided over by Reverend Wallace Shelton, where in the evening we had a heart cheering meeting and a committee was appointed to supply my needs. My wife was at Oxford where she'd been teaching for a number of years and having recently written to me in prison and the later with information having been sent to her, she received the news before my arrival on Tuesday the 19th. On June ninth, 1864, in the Congregational Church at Oxford, Ohio, by Reverend J.E. Coomer, the marriage rite was solemnized between Miss Mandana Tilston of Williamsburg, Pitt, Massachusetts, and myself, after a suspense of thir- 13 years from the time of our engagement. We were husband and wife. Their constancy and long patient waiting was rewarded with twelve years of united happiness. Then, in September 1876, this noble woman passed away, leaving her bereaved, sorrowing husband and a bright, promising boy of eight years. Calvin Fairbank refers to this, his business efforts and losses, then closes his sketch with the following beautiful tribute to his wife. I have suffered an imprisonment of seventeen years and three months. I have suffered from hunger, cold, sickness, insult, corporal punishment, and discontent. But all these sink away into thin air, into dim, distant nothingness. I count them all for joy for righteousness' sake. But this last calamity, this last stroke of misfortune which has taken from me, my stimulating genius, my dependence, my life power, my bosom friend, broods over me in darkness, numbing all my soul. Soon the last of the Liberty Army will have dropped away, and these records will appear to future generations as a tale of the past. But we shall meet beyond the river, our friends and loved ones, and we now mourn in in an eternal communion, an eternal congregation of the disembodied spirits to joy and rejoice in their society, where there shall be no night No winter, no poverty, no sickness and death, and our union shall be complete and eternal.
0: The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the Oldham Chamber and Economic Development Office.